Welcome to another episode of the Nation's Weekly Podcast. I am thrilled to be here. Quick reminder, my name is Joseph Carlson. I am the editor-in-chief here and the resident caretaker of all of the flora and fauna of this office, as well as uh, a steward of this particular mustache. And I'm joined by Stephen Elliott, our CEO. Uh, thanks for getting the wardrobe notes and shaving appropriately. It's a new requirement that we're going to have here on the podcast is that you have to have a mustache of some sort. Be kind of awkward for your guy. If no, yeah, <laughs> we don't discriminate. We don't. And so it's going to be awkward for Claire in a, like a, in a couple of hours oh when gosh. she sits in that chair and we talk with our friend John. Um, maybe we'll ask her to draw one on. Anyways, so if mine is a handlebar. Is yours a pull-up bar? Like Ooh. what is? I was trying to think of. I actually should know. Probably should probably know the formal name for what <laughs> is growing on my upper lip, but I don't. So we'll go with that. Pull-up bar. All right. Yeah. Um, no, we're excited uh, for this week's conversation. Uh, we've got a good friend of mine, Jane Register, who is uh, fascinating and an inspirational person, in my opinion. So I'm thrilled that she has joined us. Jane uh, has done a whole host of things, um, most of which are worth mentioning. I'm sure there are some that aren't worth mentioning. Um, hopefully we can get a little bit of both because that keeps things interesting. But she currently serves for at World Relief, a, a Christian faith-based organization that works with um, immigrants and refugees. And she started out there as the uh, church coordinator, engagement mobilizer. Church mobilizer. Mm-hmm. That's a fun title. Mm-hmm. It's got some action baked into it. She now serves as the program director. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And you guys just opened an office here in San Diego. Um, so we're going to talk today about a whole host of things, but mainly about Jane and her story. And uh, she's also a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. She got a master's in intercultural studies, and um, she's done a bunch of different interesting things. So let's, without any further ado, Jane, thanks for joining us today Thank you for on having the me. Nation's Pod. Um, so yesterday we bumped into each other at church and I was stoked to have this conversation with you and you laughed and you're like, well, I'm not a reformer. And then you cut yourself off because I think I maybe had chuckled at that point Mm -hmm. and you're like, well, actually, I think that everybody's a reformer. Completely. Um, how is everybody a reformer in your, in your eyes? What does the word reformer mean? I mean, I think everyone has the capacity to reform Mm -hmm. to bring reformation to whatever kind of sector of society they're called to. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's so easy for us to get like caught up in the mundane, Mm -hmm. you know, like the day to day, Mm -hmm. you know, nine to five school, kids, whatever, you know, um, the grind. But I feel like there are opportunities and moments that are like baked into everyone's day. Mm -hmm. Um, to, there are these opportunities to reform, And um, to bring redemption, to bring reconciliation, you know, and it's just taking the moment to slow down Mm. and seize that opportunity, Mm. whatever it is. Okay, so I'd love if you'd give us a little bit of context for who Jane is and how we know that you currently live here in North County and that you work for World Relief and that entails working with the refugee community. Um, How did you end up here like, where'd, where'd you come from? What are some of the things that you consider formative experiences or communities or jobs that you've had that have led you to this point? Okay. Um, it's very much kind of like rabbit trail Great. journey for me. Um, I was born in Philly, raised in New Jersey. Um, my parents are Korean immigrants. And um, 
we were born in Philadelphia. They moved, moved us to the suburbs. So we ended up in this kind of wealthy kind of Jewish neighborhood. Mm. So, I mean, literally kind of all of my neighbors were Jewish. I was like one of the only non-white, non-Jewish kids at my school. Um, so I kind of grew up very aware of kind of, um, being on the margins or just being a little bit different, mm -hmm. you know? And then I was raised in a church that was in West Philly. So we commute to a church in West Philly. Um, it was an old hospital, um, but it was, um, a block from West Philly High. Um, it was next to the projects. And so it was a very, um, formative kind of, um, dichotomy that I lived in. And so it was interesting for me to like go to Bible studies, you know, about generosity, but then we'd find homeless people in our church and they'd be like escorted out, mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, how can we say this, but we're not living it out? How can we just, how can we preach it? And how can we like write about it and mm -hmm. read about it? And so it, like, I felt this weird tension, you know? Um, and so that gave me this kind of fascination with like just stratification society and just how different people's realities were. Yeah. You know, just, they were just born into different realities. You know, we don't have any control over that. And so, um, that led me to go to school, um, in Michigan. I, I studied sociology and psychology. Um, again, worked in the projects. I was actually a boy scout leader because there was such <laughs> a need for Boy Scout leaders, and it was like, hey, I'll do it. So it was me and a bunch of college kids, you know, and um, it was part of our like experiential learning mm -hmm. in, in our sociology class. And so um, it was fascinating, mm. you know, because it was like we would learn, you know, about kind of these concepts in sociology and we'd go do it, you know, and um, super formative for me. And then post college, um, I actually ended up, um, I was interviewing for jobs in New York city in Philadelphia interview with a venture capitalist. And I was like, you know what, before I start school, I actually want to go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I was like, I'm gonna look for a job. Cause I went there when I was um, in high school for vacation and um, found this nonprofit that was working with um, inner city youth from inner city, Baltimore, DC. They'd fly them out for like three weeks to a month at a time. And these are kids that had never been on a plane and things like that. They had never, they'd never slept outside under stars. They, they'd never seen stars, period, because no of pollution, you know. They'd never been outside of a 10-block radius. And so um, was there and just, like, saw the power of and the healing of nature for these kids. Mm. And um, so that kind of took me on some other paths. Um, I ended up working for um, New Jersey Tree Foundation, and I was um, running an urban reforestation program in uh, the inner city. Okay. Um, urban reforestation program. So planting trees in the city? Yeah. I mean, how does... Okay. That sounds awesome, and I kind of like to have that job personally. Um, <laughs> you love it. I, I love trees. Um, okay, so what did that look like? Um, so what it looked like was, um, organizing, um, residents that live in that community. So whoever lived in those communities, um, there'd be one person in the neighborhood that would apply for tree planting for their neighborhood. We had, um, fines through the EPA. They had fined companies and corporations that were polluting, mm. air polluting. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, there were, 
you know, these fines basically to mitigate air pollution. So they gave it to us and we got to develop whatever we wanted. And so we were like, we want to use this as a tool to teach community organizing, mm. community development. And so we would gather the residents. They'd come up with a plan for their community. And um, the tree planting was kind of like the kickoff. Like, all right, we're doing it, you know. And so it was, I mean, whoever lived in that neighborhood. And it was a smattering of people, mm. sometimes in the most like drug infested areas. But like we would have drug dealers come out and plant trees we'd have prostitutes come out and plant trees and um and for a lot of those communities it was was the first time they met each other like face to face Mm. and so um it was like such a rad opportunity like for them to just build a sense of like humanity Mm -hmm. in their own neighborhoods and see that they were capable of creating change and so, like, the end of a tree planting, it was like, oh, my gosh, a hundred trees in our neighborhood. Like, that. Like, it looks like a community. Yeah. You know? Did yeah. you see... So, I, I'm at, how long did you do that job? So, I did that job for three years. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, have you had the opportunity to go back to any of those communities? Yeah. yeah? Have you seen transformation? Completely. Really? I mean, I've, I've taken our family back. So, I've, like, taken the kids back mm-hmm. and Willie and we've, like gone and visited the trees, you know, and it's, I mean, it's so insane, you know, like the, there are some neighborhoods where maybe there hasn't been as much transformation, Mm -hmm. but then there are other neighborhoods where it's like, you can see the visible effect. Mm -hmm. Um, cause like they've developed like a community park at the end of the street, you know? And it's like, Oh my gosh, they actually did it. Like this plan that they had for their neighborhood, Mm -hmm. they figured it out and they did it themselves, you know? So cool. Yeah. I want to back up really uh, quickly because so some of the things I've heard from your story thus far is um, from an early age, you're developing this awareness of, like you, you mentioned, being on the margins. You grew up in, in a community where you felt different than other. Um, but then you mentioned that you guys are going to church in West Philly, right next to the projects. What? Why did your parents choose to go? Was there not like a church that you could go you know, in your, in your neighborhood, or I know you mentioned it was Jewish. Was that the reason why you guys went and found this other church and this like very different, or is there some other reason that your parents chose that space? I think that was a church that they were originally at when they were living in Philly. Gotcha. And, um, in the Korean community, the church was like such a, it was like the the community center, Mm. you know? And so it was like kind of where people like shared information and resources and, um, people develop like financial Mm co-ops and so they were able to help fund each other's businesses and things like that. Mm. Um, and so once we moved to the suburbs, my parents were like, we're not going to change churches. We're going to stay. Um, cause they'd already developed relationships there. So Mm. yeah, that's kind of awesome. Okay. So that your experience there and then post-college you start, you go out to Jackson hole (laughs) and realize the power of nature to, to change people's perspective. Mm-hmm. And then instead of exporting people from these, from the inner city to have an experience out in nature, you say, well, wait a second, what would it look like if we brought nature into those mm-hmm. spaces and to see what sort of transformation would happen? So there's this rich theme of you wanting to understand people and to have an impact in your community. So how does that then, how do you get from Camden, New Jersey, this like really broken place to Pasadena or to Southern California? 
So um, while I was at the New Jersey Tree Foundation, um, I was in one community and uh, we were like kind of prepping for a tree planting and it was, um, it was right by the sewage treatment plant. So it smells horrendous. Um, it's also right by the freeway. So it's like where all the truck drivers come. There's a lot of prostitutes, lots of drugs. So one day I'm out, I'm marking the street and um, I came across this group of like college age, kind of college educated like kids. Mm. And they're all like clean looking, like they're like dressed well and like very obviously educated, you know? And I was like, what are you doing in this neighborhood? And they told me um, that they were a group that had moved into the neighborhood intentionally. They were Christians. Um, and they said, we're, we feel called to love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. And um, they were connected with um, Simple Way. Mm-hmm. So Shane Claiborne's yeah. group. And so they have branched off and, and come together as a group. And they were loving their neighbors. They were doing after school tutoring with the kids in the neighborhood. And uh, they were just doing community meals. They just would do like massive dinners with whoever, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I, it like rocks my faith mm-hmm. because I had never seen people living it out so simply, but actually doing it. I was mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, they're doing it. <laughs> like all this stuff that we read about, yeah. they're actually doing it. And I was like, I have never seen this before. And so it like gave me this new like model, mm-hmm. you know, and um so out of that, I actually ended up overseas. I did this thing called the World Race. And it was um, 11 months in 11 countries. And um, basically every month we go to a different country. And um, it was a radical experience, mm-hmm. you know. Um, formed my faith, like, and gave me a very, like, global understanding of my faith. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I really felt called to international development after that because we did a lot of projects with um, female entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, some micro enterprise stuff. And so I went to Fuller for that because okay. I spent a lot of time in India working with a group um, in Calcutta that was doing micro loans with um, women in the red light districts, women that were widows um, and street street kids. So do like doing these micro loans and doing like um, business planning with these groups and also teaching the kids how to community organize. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew I needed more training. So mm-hmm. I was like, let me go to seminary and then go back overseas. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the plan. Like back to, back to Calcutta. Yeah. I wanted to go to seminary, you know, so I, I studied, um, my concentration was international development. Okay. So I was going to go back overseas, um, but that wasn't God's plan for me. So what happened? Yeah, why did you never make it back? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I met Willie that first, my husband. Oh, so it um, was love. It was love. And it was like not in my plans. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I think both of us thought we were going to be back overseas. Hmm. But um, we met the first week of seminary. And then we dated kind of dur- throughout my seminary time. Mm-hmm. I got married kind of mid um, my program, and then um, basically we ended up having three kids in three years. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, we were kind of like, all right, we want to go back overseas. Let's have the kids, you know, and go back. 
But when we prayed about it, God was like, we, you know, we were praying. We we're like, God, like, where, where do you want to send us? Like, we'll go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, send us out, you know? And God was like, what about Carlsbad, California? And we were like, no, <laughs> like completely not in our plans at all. Mm-hmm. Like not even on the grid, you know? So, I mean, it was like really kind of death to our dreams in a lot of ways, yeah. you know? Cause was Willie working with Young Life at this point? Willie was at North Coast Calvary Chapel. Oh, he was? He was. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. All well, roads lead back. But oh. he, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> But he had started Yumi Clothing, so his clothing company, and he was doing these sewing groups and stuff. And so that was actually my oh, first gosh. introduction to refugees. Oh, really? Locally. Wow. So he was training them, uh, men and women, training them how mm-hmm. to sew and uh, manufacture clothing for his company. And these are refugees from where? Refugees from primarily Africa. Okay. Um, Sudanese, primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so men and women that he was training um, once a week. Yeah. Wait, does Willie, yeah. does Willie sew? Yeah, he's phenomenal. Really? Yeah. Dude. Like, he's made clothing for me. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. He taught dude, me how to sew. Dude, maybe we should do a um, a Nation's Willie Register uh, collab. He can sew some, some merch for us. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And it's free time. Yeah, and all this free time that he has. That both of you guys have, uh, both working and being community leaders and having three children. Yeah. Okay, so you, uh, so your call to go serve the nations does not lead, in fact, back out into uh, the nations overseas, mm-hmm. but into our backyard here in Carlsbad. Um, so how long? So you obviously spent a good bit of time focusing on uh, having and raising three kids, and then made this decision to re-enter the workforce. Um, so. Had you kind of decided on working with re- refugees at that point, or was that like how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Um, it it's an interesting story. Um, so we were actually in Guatemala at the time, Willie and I. We were at a conference. Mm. Um, Joel was there actually, Joel Parker, and it was like the final night of this conference, and somebody was up on the stage, um, and. They were basically, it was kind of like altar call kind of thing, you know, and it was like, hey, ask God um, who it is he's calling you to, um, what people group or whatever. And, um, and Willie was like, he's calling us to refugees. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, so I was like, I'm, I'm down. I was like, whatever that looks like, you know, I don't know. Um, but I was in the thick of motherhood. So I like wasn't really thinking about what that would look like for me. Mm-hmm. Um and so Willie was like, let's pray about it. Maybe we'll sell our house, all this stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like not ready for that. I'm like, we literally just unpacked the boxes. So um, anywho, we just kind of were praying on it. And then um, we ended up through in this kind of crazy season. Um, my sister got breast cancer and then my mom got liver cancer. Mm-hmm. And so it was like caretaking for my kids, but also caretaking for my, um, my mom and my sister, um, my sister, she recovered. Uh, my mom didn't. And so it was interesting because um, after like a heavy duty season of caretaking, um, I was like, pretty burnt out, mm-hmm. you know. But I was like, okay, well, Ember's in kindergarten now. This is probably a good time for me to go back to school or go back to work and actually use my degree. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was like, I don't even know where to start looking. 
And um, I met up with a mentor. She's kind of like a spiritual director for me. Um, and she said, hey, you know, I think you actually need to meet my friend. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, you know. And so this friend of hers um, runs an organization called Hope for San Diego. And they had been recruiting for, uh, I think, about two years of recruiting somebody to start this um, project for World Relief in San Diego. Mm. So it was a group of churches that were kind of working with refugees, very uncoordinated, you know, just kind of flying by the seat of their pants, you know. And so they said, hey, um, World Relief does this. Like, you already do this in other cities. What if you do it here? And um, a group of churches came together and they pulled their money to like basically give us our seed money mm. for San Diego. And um, I was like, I don't really know a lot about refugees. Like my experience is super limited. I know marginalized communities um, and I am familiar with church culture and church models and stuff like that. And um, I just applied for it. Like they recruited me, I applied for it and then I got the job. Mm. And so... Um, it's, it's pretty wild though. Cause right before I got that job, um, there was a gentleman kind of out of the blue. He was like standing behind me at a Sunday service. And, um, he said to my husband, Hey, I, I got, gave me a word for your wife. And Willie was like, yeah, go talk to Jane, you know? And so this guy comes over to me. I'd never seen him before. I was like, I don't know who this guy is, but he was like, Hey, God told me that the call that he has in your life is irrevocable. And he hasn't forgotten you mm. and he sees you. And I was like, and I'm like burnt out, mm. you know, like I'm burnt to a crisp. Mm. Um, and I was like, what, mm. you know, I haven't, I hadn't worked at that point in gosh, I think it was like 10 years. And I was like, my brain is like cobwebs, you know? And so, um, I mean, it was like such a God thing. It was like one thing led to another to another. And then I ended up with this job at World Relief. And, and it was like, oh my gosh, everything that you've put in my heart, like all the passions that you've given me, mm. the experience, um, all of those little unique things, like kind of came to this like culminating point where I got offered this job. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh, the nations are actually here. Mm. I had no idea. Mm. You know, I don't have to go overseas they're in my neighborhood, mm -hmm. you know, like my literal neighborhood. They're going to school with my kids, you know, so. So talk about, I'm curious, um, one kind of world relief, what you guys do specifically, yeah. and then broadly, like help paint a picture for these communities that for a lot of us in the United States are somewhat invisible, that we don't see. Who are these people? Why are they here? What are mm -hmm. they... What are they struggling with? Um, and then how does that intersect with the work that you do? Okay. Um, World Relief, we are an international organization. Mm -hmm. So internationally, um, we do a lot of like international development. Okay. So um, agriculture, um, economic development. But domestically, that looks like um, working with refugees, mm. asylum seekers, migrants, um, immigrants kind of of all... Um, all types. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot of the work that we do is, um, giving churches an understanding of our call as followers of Jesus to love and welcome 
mm-hmm. refugees. Mm-hmm. But part of that also is identifying ourselves with that and understanding that that is actually our story. Mm-hmm. If you are a follower of Jesus, you were an outsider yeah. and he brought you in. Like, yeah. this is your story. Um, and we have the opportunity to create that same welcome and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so there's some of that that we do. Um, but we also realize that when it comes to loving and welcoming, um, practically speaking, there is a legal aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So that looks like providing immigration legal services, mm-hmm. um, helping with filing forms, mm. um, translation of mm. forms. Um, it looks like legal, legal representation, preparing asylum cases. Um, traditionally, most of our offices do something called reception and placement. So um, we are one of the nine resettlement agencies in the U.S. And so we do, we receive refugees and we resettle them. So we manage our cases, connect them with social services, school enrollment, um, kind of all of the all of the things that come with being in America. Hmm. Wow. You mentioned I'd love for you to help us understand some definitions um, because it sounded like you made a distinction between immigrant, refugee, asylum seeker, and I'm I'm pretty sure there are some legal distinctions between mm-hmm. those. Could you uh, unpack those? Yeah, I mean, immigrant is kind of like the more broad umbrella term, mm-hmm. um, and then. Refugees, um, they are basically processed through the UN. So it's typically about a three-year process. Um, and it's a lengthy process because you have to go through security clearances, mm-hmm. medical clearances. Sometimes you do that multiple times. You're interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get immunizations. And so it's, it's a long process. But then for asylum seekers... Um, it's kind of a retroactive process. So in order to get the same um, benefits, to qualify for the same things that a refugee qualifies for, they do it retroactively. So asylum seekers, they cross a border and immediately you don't have the opportunity to go through the refugee process. Mm-hmm. So for example, people that were fleeing Afghanistan that crossed the border into Pakistan, um, automatically you're having to go through the asylum process. Because you're not going to wait in no. Afghanistan for the UN with the Taliban knocking on your door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's a retroactive process that you have to go through in order to get the same, you know, mm-hmm. treatment. Okay. And is there, I feel like I remember something along the lines of which, which you have to demonstrate a credible threat yeah. to your life. Is that, does that apply to both refugees and to asylum seekers? Um, asylum seekers. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So to be yeah. considered, for asylum, you have to be able to demonstrate in some capacity a credible threat to your life in, mm-hmm. or like severe hardship. Yeah. Um, the place that you're fleeing from. Yeah. Whereas refugee, there can be any number of yeah. re- valid There's reasons. war in your country. Right. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Or just there's there's no economic opportunity and so yeah. you're just you're looking for a better life. Kind yeah. of a classic immigrant story. Of, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was interesting over the weekend, I was uh, just kind of randomly pulling a book off the shelf and um, read something from the old screw tape letters, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, that we were talking about this morning mm-hmm. that, um, as I was listening to one of your messages, seemed appropriate and even kind of cause for introspection for me. And it was essentially the idea, you know, screw tape letters, the setup is 
the demon is writing to his mentee about how to properly deceive and keep humans um, enslaved. Mm -hmm. And in this particular one he was talking about, uh, this is kind of the, the summation of keeping your, your virtues far away mm -hmm. and your vices close. Yeah. Meaning, you know, whatever you do, don't let your person actually love their neighbor closest to them. Mm. But by all means, you know, let them give money and be charitable to those who are far away. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I know for myself, like thinking about that, you know, how easy that is, especially living where we live, to do good things for those who we may never meet, which mm -hmm. is good, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, but then use that as our check the box and justification um, and not do the work for those that are closest to us. So that was one thing that kind of occurred to me as I was pondering this, but I'm, I'm curious what other, um, what other impediments or what, what do you find misconceptions or challenges in this work of, you know, the work of, it sounds like of serving and connecting those that are displaced, mm -hmm. um, but then the work of activating and mobilizing um, the people that we say we follow Jesus, mm -hmm. um, but are we actually, you know, being his body? What, what are some of the things and challenges that you find commonly on the, on the activation side? Um, I think one of the things that I've found most challenging is it sounds so simple, but actually, um, seeing the Imago Dei is mm -hmm. in people. Um, if you don't do that, you can't do this, mm. you know? And when you dehumanize um, your neighbor and mm. it's so easy to do. Yeah. And it's so easy to think about the resources that we have or the resources that are in America as you think of it as a zero sum game. It's so easy to think like that. Everybody mm -hmm. thinks like that. It's a natural thing. Like this is mine, I worked hard for it, right. you know? Um, and it's easy to justify exclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me, like the, the work that I have been doing goes back to like the most simple disciplines of our faith. Mm -hmm. So like just breaking bread with somebody that's different, mm -hmm. sharing coffee with somebody that's different. Mm -hmm. um, and creating experiences that are humanizing because I realize dehumanizing people it is it's kind of innate in us yeah. it's so easy yeah we create labels or stereotypes um we read the news with that lens um but i really do feel like the work of the gospel is actually the opposite hmm. you know um to see the one yeah. you know to cause the keys down from the tree you know and it's like those it's like okay there are opportunities built into my every day where I can practice seeing and honoring the image of God in somebody else mm -hmm. and actually believing that we image him better together mm -hmm. than apart. Like we form a more complete picture together yeah. than apart. And I mean, you can see that in just the different traditions, the different spiritual tradition, traditions and the um, even just the ethnic churches, mm -hmm. like I've realized, um, just being a part of different churches, speaking at different churches and seeing the different things that they emphasize. I'm like, I needed that, mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't realize I was, I was even missing it. 
Yeah. Right. That just was never part of my spirituality, mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, I think a lot of kind of the work against the labeling, the dehumanization, like this is ours, is um, seeing ourselves as a part of that collective. Um, so oftentimes what I'll do, um, we've done this exercise where we ask people about their ancestors' immigrant story. Mm. And then we actually look at some of the discriminatory policies that existed when they were arriving in America. Mm. And consistently, the thing that we found is um, the newer groups that were arriving were being confronted with discriminatory policies by the people that were there before them, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just consistent, you it's know, and like it's, it's like hazing when you come to yeah. this continent or a new place, I guess, it's, yeah. which is, yeah. And so I think the challenge of not seeing it as a us and them mm -hmm. and as like a this is us. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is all of us. This is all of our journeys. Yeah. It's just at different times, mm -hmm. you know, and confronting different things, you know. Um, and so that that's kind of one of the ways that I've been really trying to like work through some of the the challenges mm -hmm. that I've seen, that I've encountered mm -hmm. in this work. Well, I've got to benefit from that approach that you've taken personally. You've invited uh Kelly and I to share a meal with some people locally and hear the story of uh, a devastating story of escape this Iranian couple as new believer um, that was just incredibly eye-opening for us and you have been our guide as the nation's team taking us down across the border and introduced us to Donna Maria whose story we got to share a few weeks back on the website um, so thanks Thanks for the way that you've uh, modeled that um, in your own life and in your, your work as well. I appreciated earlier when you were talking about some of the work that you're doing with World Relief, you were naming some of kind of the theological or the spiritual like elements to it, but then immediately uh, acknowledged that the work that you guys do has an inherently political and legal aspect to it because, um, well, we live, we live in a political state in the United States. Um, we live in a border community ourselves here in San Diego. And so, um, yeah, have you, I'm curious, like what are some of the complexities or challenges or um, opportunities that you found in trying to hold the tension between those two, like, hey, providing legal services mm -hmm. on the one hand, and, but then also trying to advocate for a an ethic that scripture lays out that can be really Countercultural when it comes to the general atmosphere or attitude towards immigration in our country? Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that I realized is that there's a lot of miscommunication or mis misunderstanding mm -hmm. of um, what love and welcome actually looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's easy for us to want to just write a check, done, you know, stick my head in the sand, I'm good. But, um, I've realized in this field, like love in action actually is very political. Mm -hmm. um, and by not engaging in that aspect of it, like policy advocacy work, when you're not engaging in that, you're, you're actually turning your back mm -hmm. on loving the, loving the immigrant, you mm -hmm. know, welcoming the stranger. Um, Cause that's actually what they need mm -hmm. as much as they need a house. Mm -hmm. as much as they need, you know, food mm -hmm. 
and they need schooling. Um, there is inherently a political aspect of love in action, like the praxis part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes people are afraid of that. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, what is this going to mean? You know, like opening our borders and things like that. No, it's, there's still a process. We're not eradicating the process. Um, but we want the process to be more in line with scripture mm. and our mandate, you know, as followers of Jesus. What does that look like? Does it look like um, providing shelter? Yeah. Does it look like um, providing food and clothing? It looks like all those things. And it also looks like fair immigration policies. Mm. So you just mentioned, you know, the the bare necessities, you know, food, shelter, clothing, um, alongside some of this policy stuff. What, from your guys' perspective, what are some of those bigger, um, like, policy areas that you guys are focusing on advocating around that you could see, hey, if we could change this, we would really improve not just the conversation, but mm -hmm. the lived experience of, of, you know, our our community as the host community, you know, um, and then the experience of immigrants, refugees, or asylum seekers who are coming in. Um, I mean, a couple of things. Um, I think with the crisis in Afghan Afghanistan mm -hmm. um, and then with the war in Ukraine, um, we definitely have seen um, a difference mm -hmm. in reception, you know, how people are received, how they're, how they're perceived. And um, there are still things that are inherently um, prejudiced, yeah. mm -hmm. you know. And, um, I, unfortunately it's something that I, I still see, even with our host home program, we have, you know, um, families that are hosting refugees in their homes mm -hmm. and there's, there is something innate, like a fear, you mm -hmm. know, like I've never been with a Muslim, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, they're here in our community, yeah. you know, but there is just a fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, there is that aspect of it, but we also have seen, um, the asylum process is, it exists, you know, there is a, an asylum process that exists in theory, but in practice, when, for example, um, an Afghan family that walks for five months from Brazil with their infant, it took them five months, um, mom and dad are Christians, um, and Christians in Afghanistan are very, very rare. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when, when we met them, we were like, oh my gosh, we've never met Christians from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, they told us their story of walking for five months from um, Brazil through the jungle. And um, when they came to the border, they came to a port of entry. And um, they said that they were seeking asylum and they were turned away. So in theory, it is, there is a process. You are supposed to be able to go to up to a border and present yourself at a port of entry and say that you're claiming asylum, you're seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. And there's a process to receive you. Um, they weren't able to do that. No. They got sent away. Um, and so they crossed over the border themselves. Mm. I don't know how they did it with a baby. They had an infant and Jeez. they somehow came over the fence. CBP came 
And um, they took them and put them in a detention center and processed them. And so even though there is a theoretical process for asylum, mm. it doesn't actually exist in practice. And so mm -hmm. this, is, this is the process functionally yeah. that is in place. Yeah. So part of what, cross over the border. So part of what justice looks like is actually just enforcing the laws that actually already yes, exist. completely. And just making sure that the processes that we've set up to work are, in fact, working. Yeah. Because then presumably it makes it that much easier to categorize anybody who looks different than us coming into this country as, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, illegal, mm -hmm. which that may technically be true in terms mm -hmm. of how they enter, but mm -hmm. it's because this other part of a process yeah. is really not not operating correctly. Yeah. And so it becomes very binary yes. in, that, in that respect. Yeah. You mentioned that you guys have seen uh, a difference in attitudes with regard to Ukraine, the crisis in Ukraine and the crisis in Afghanistan. I'm assuming that there's a greater... There's more open openness and less judgment towards uh, the plight of the Ukrainians than those of the Afghans yeah. uh, from Afghanistan. Yeah. Gotcha. Bummer. That's unfortunate. Especially because we were there in Afghanistan causing a lot of that mess yeah. for yeah. quite some time. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious to know, and I think we'll wrap up our conversation here in a little bit, but I'd love to hear... Um, a couple stories from you, if you've got some in your hip pocket about uh, transformation. I know that, you know, in, in your role as a church mobilizer, your job was to try and activate faith communities to say, hey, oh, just um, open your eyes and look around because you're surrounded by, as you said, the nations are in our backyard. Yeah. And there is a, and, and when you're speaking with faith communities in particular, you have that freedom to uh, claim the biblical mandate, mm -hmm. both Old Testament and New Testament, saying, hey, this is what it looks like. Remember, this is your story. This is our story. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's live it out. And so let's, uh, let's live up to and into what it is Jesus has called for us to do with regard mm -hmm. to the immigrant, the resident alien, you know, to practice, as you said, these really simple um, spiritual disciplines, human rituals like breaking bread together, um, so I'd love it if you have a story of, of awakening of like, hey, have you worked with any um, families or faith communities locally where this wasn't really on their radar and then they did, they, they, they kind of saw the need, they saw the people, heard the stories and that has catalyzed, a, you know, a, a change or a transformation. Mm -hmm. You got any of those stories? Um, I have a couple of stories. Hmm. Um, so... That one family, the Afghan family, mm -hmm. um, they were being processed kind of through, they were, pro they were processed through the detention center. So Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Patrol. And um, we get this random email. Um, no, it was a text. It was a random text. And it was like, hey, do you have anywhere that you can house this Afghan family? Um, they're being released from the detention center in, in uh San Diego. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what is the whole story here? And so, I mean, it's kind of wild, but this family, they came through the border and they said, do you know anybody in the U S and he said, I know, um, a missionary that was in Afghanistan many, many, many years ago. And he said, let me see if I can find him mm -hmm. on social media. So he finds him on Instagram. So he sends us DM to this missionary that he had met, you know, and he was like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me. And, um, and he says, I'm in San Diego. Do you know anybody in San Diego? And so this random guy in Charlottesville, Virginia is like, I have a friend. 
In California, yes. And so their friend in California, <laughs> he's actually in LA. He was like, well, I'm in LA. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't have anywhere to house them. Like he just was a furloughed missionary. Mm-hmm. He ended up back here because of COVID. And so he was like, I, I'll see if I know anybody. And so he actually was connected with this church. It's called River Church in Vista. Yeah. Had ne- I had never heard of them before. They had never done any work with refugees before. No grid. Zero. But they just had this personal connection. Um, and so the River Church reaches out to me and they said, hey, I don't know. We don't, we've never done this before. And I said, actually, we've got this host home program. And, um, and this is crazy, but we happen to have this trailer that's at an RV park in Vista at this Christian retreat center. And, um, I mean, it was like, like the linking of so many different Christian communities. Um, so there was a, um, a young missionary couple that was furloughed because of COVID. They came back. They were living in, you know, kind of the tiny house movement, you know, people were living in like trailers and RVs and stuff. So they were living in an RV that they had remodeled and stuff, but they were having their second baby. And, um, the wife was like, Hey, I need somewhere to store this or could you use it? Cause if we're going to store it, I have to drive, we have to drive it up to central California. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to find a place. Like, give me a minute. Like, let me make some calls and stuff. And so I reached out to Green Oak Ranch in Vista. Mm. They're a Christian retreat center and they have an RV park um, Mm. that's built into their retreat center. And I said, hey, so this is so random, you know, cold call. Um, Could you potentially set aside a site for us to put this RV to house a refugee or asylum seeking family? And they're like, what? I don't know. We've never done that before. And so they're like, we got to talk to our people. And then they agreed to it. Wow. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to let you keep it here for free for six months. And we were like, awesome. So it was like all of these like puzzle pieces coming together. And um, the Afghan family is in the RV now. Uh, World Relief is doing their asylum case. Um, and they are surrounded by this like Christian community. I mean, it's, there are so many Christians that live in that community they have not been around christians like publicly Mm -hmm. because this is like an afghan family that was a part of kind of underground christian Mm -hmm. movements and i mean it is radical for them like we can pray in public we can sing in public we can go to church in public you know and um they're just surrounded by these christians that have welcomed them who have zero experience have maybe have never seen an Afghan in their lives, you know, have no grid for this. And, um, and then the river church is actually, um, after the six month point, they're taking over the lease and they're going to continue to house them until their asylum claim is granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. I can see it now. I want to do an editorial piece on this and I want it to be called the most beautiful game of telephone. because that's what that was that is literally what it is which is like gosh that's so amazing yeah i mean so for every family like it's it's been insane just like i mean god's story just like constantly and you're Mm. like this it can't be real Mm. yeah that's beautiful yeah and just the timing of everything it's like okay god 
like, you know. And the thing that's been so challenging for me is like, for these um, Christians that are coming from persecuted countries, their faith is so simple, mm -hmm. so desperate. Their needs are so immediate, but God is like, it's, he's so faithful to answer, yeah. you know? And, and so I'm seeing all these like miracles, like, and it's like reviving my faith. Honestly, I'm like, okay, God, you did it for them. Mm. Like you're fully real. You already know, yeah. you know? So yeah. Oh, man, that's so cool. That's awesome. Steven, any other questions for Jane? I think, um, just if people listening to this are, they want to learn more about what's happening with, you know, refugees abroad and in the United States or in Southern California and mm -hmm. or want to get involved in some way or learn about how they can get involved with World Relief, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, probably through our social media. Okay. Um, so World Relief, World Relief SoCal, but also our website because okay. we're constantly just updating with new needs, immediate needs. Awesome. Yeah. Jane, thanks so much for taking some time to swing by the nation's office. And uh, we you. have, Stephen, would you slide this, this gift over? Absolutely. Um, there's a sweatshirt. Oh, sweat, Soft, soft sweatshirt for you. Awesome. Um, some nation's coffee and a beautiful postcard that also happens to be a free year subscription on the back. So what? a tiny token of our thanks. Awesome. Uh, but just so appreciate you, who you are, you coming by and sharing your story and some of the stories of the work that you get to do, seeing how God's alive and active in the world. So I'm sure this won't be the last time that you're on this podcast because, I mean, geez, lady, you've lived an interesting life and I don't expect that to end anytime soon, especially knowing Willie. Yeah. There's, there's much fun. more in store for the Register family. So thanks so much for coming by. Thank you guys so much. This has been awesome. Jane! Thank you! Nice. Oh. Yeah. Man. So rad.